This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So joining me today on the Becoming Educated podcast is none other than Richard Gerver. Richard has been described as one of the most inspirational leaders of his generation. He's an award-winning speaker, best-selling author and world-renowned thinker. Richard began his career in education, most notably as headmaster of the failing Grange Primary School. In just two years, he famously transformed the school into one of the most acclaimed learning environments in the world. He was celebrated by UNESCO and the UK government for its incredible turnaround. Richard's books include The Outstanding, Creating Tomorrow's Schools Today, Change and Simple Thinking. Richard's latest book, Education, A Manifesto for Change, explores how our school system can be made fit for purpose in our turbulent 21st century world. Richard, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Darren, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and thank you so much for reading out my mum's email as an introduction. That's very kind of you. <laughs> we can always count on our mum to write such wonderful things about us. Um, it's a, just before we start, the pleasure's all mine, Richard, as I said, off air. But to kick off the interview for the podcast today, could you just give us a whistle-stop tour of your career up to this point, please? Yeah, sure. Um, It's been, I mean, in many ways, I just think of it as an extraordinary life that keeps lurching in different directions. Um, I started out as, when I left school, I tried to to carve a career for myself as an actor. Um, Major flaw in the plan was I was rubbish. Um, So that didn't last very long. But in the two years between school and university, looking back on it now, it was invaluable experience for what I moved into later in life. You know, I did all kinds of jobs from, um, don't judge me for this, a state agency through to um, below the line advertising and everything in between. Um, Went to university, um, wasn't, if I'm honest, at that time thinking about a career in education still, met a young woman who was uh, in her final year of a teaching degree, because of course I was two years back, three years back nearly. Um, so we started dating and uh, in an effort to impress her, I told her how marvellous it was that she was going to be a teacher. <laughs> anyway, when I finished my degree a couple of years later, we were still together. She held me to that and enrolled me on the postgraduate certificate for education, um, which by then, joking apart, I'd been into her school a lot to do work with her kids, particularly in English and drama and stuff and fallen in love with it. It must have worked, by the way, because um, we're about to celebrate our, our 30th year together. So, so that all worked out OK. I became a teacher um, working in inner city Derby um, in a primary school Uh, loved it and it was you know some of us are lucky enough to know what we want to do years in advance some of us stumble like I did into the career and you think my god why why was this never on my radar and actually I've found my place you know this is my epiphany it's where I need to be um, and some people, of course, n- never get there. Um, so I was in that that middle group. Um, I-, I loved my job every single second from the earliest days as a teacher in 1992 right the way through. And, and it allowed me to be involved uh, in school through some really seismic transformations. You know, um, I was there at the advent of the first um, national curriculum. Um, I was there at the start of SATs tests and, and that kind of thing. And also at the remodeling and formation of Ofsted um, from what was the old national inspector in, in England. Um, and uh, worked my way through. Um, I, I was in the career at a very interesting time because at that time um, we had a government that were that were carrying out austerity in public services, which meant a lot of teachers were being pensioned off early to reduce the number of staff in schools, which created an incredible vacuum because that meant that rather than having to wait your turn and go through a long career before you got promoted if you wanted to, um, I found myself in the position of becoming a deputy head teacher of a very large primary school in Derbyshire also in a socially deprived community after only five years of of teaching Uh, that was great Um, absolutely amazing experience there working with one of the most extraordinary head teachers I've ever worked with who actually has gone on to become an expert and author around resilience James Hilton Um, and and then found I then went to work for a local authority for a while. Um, I was seconded to develop a culture of a love of reading and writing, particularly with boys who were underachieving and in vulnerable circumstances. And as part of that process, 
Um, I wasn't looking for a headship at the time. I was loving that job. Um, stumbled into a school called Grange in Long Eaton, which I was asked to go and visit to try and persuade them to put some of their boys on our developing program. Um, and fell in love much in the same way that somebody might fall in love with a house. You know, when you go house hunting and you might see 15, 20 houses, right? And for no accountable reason, one which has got the same floor plan as all the others just feels like it's where you can see yourself spending Christmas, you know? And uh, that happened. I fell in love um, with the place and the people, actually. Um, I found out that the acting head had been acting head, bless her heart, on at least three occasions in her 30 years in the school and had no intention of wanting to be the head. They'd had, I think, eight head teachers in 10 years, and the last head teacher uh, was off on long-term sick, and the reason they were now looking for a permanent new head was after 18 months of him being on um, stress-related illness uh, sick, he uh, he was signed off, and so they were able to appoint a new head. I um, thought about it, fell in love with it, and thought, look, I've got to go for this. I was in my early thirties. I thought I've got to go for this because it's just I I know well I'll for the rest of my life I'll beat myself up wondering what if if I didn't right. So I applied for the job and got it, and I got it not because I wish I could tell you I was a wonderkind or I was a superstar or I was the new bright young thing. I got the job because I was, it turns out, the only applicant. And the reason I was the only, so frankly, the fact I was breathing was enough. Um, and the, it turns out later, and, and when I say later, uh, about 30 seconds after I signed my contract with the local authority, I was told that potentially the reason why no one else had applied for the job was at that time the uh, UK government under Labour had a programme called the Phoenix programme. And the Phoenix programme was a system where if you had um, habitually failing schools, you could technically shut it down, sack everybody, rebrand it, relaunch it, restaff it, regovernor it, put new uniform in, because that makes all the difference, a new school badge. Um, and and then, you know, start, start a school from scratch. And it turns out I was the only person in, in Derbyshire that didn't know that was the plan for the school. Anyway, became a head, um, was a head of, and it was the most extraordinary time of my professional career. You know, I often say this to people, and I want to caveat it really right at the start of our, our chat together. I took over a school that had nothing to lose, right? It was so bad. So it's, much easier to lead a school in that state than a school that's doing okay or even better, right? Because you don't have a stake in getting stuff wrong. There's only one way you can go. But what happened over the next seven years was an extraordinary, extraordinary journey where an entire community came together. Teachers that had been in that school for 20, 30 years, but um, each a, a few young teachers, parents, carers, and most importantly, the kids came together and we created something extraordinary. Um, and that meant actually that within 18 months of starting that journey, the school had gone from being in the bottom 5% of UK schools statistically, according to test data, to being in the top 5%. And, and what happens when stuff like that happens is everybody becomes interested. And the truth is, you only you don't think you're doing anything special, right? None of us do as teachers. None of us do as heads. We just go in every day and do the very best we can for our community. Um, but people became interested, including governments who started to sniff around. Um, and what that meant was over the, the ensuing years through the to the, to the seventh year of my headship, I was increasingly being asked to go and talk more and more and more about what we were doing and why we were doing it and how it had worked. You know, in a way, I envy people now in, in the position they are because there's such wonderful access to social media to share some of that stuff. I was physically having to travel all over the place <laughs> to do it, right? And it did get to a point where that woman who started me on my journey, my wife, turned around to me one day and said, Richard, you're gonna have to make a choice. Um, because you are spending, and I know this is not mathematically possible, you're spending eight days a week working and we're never seeing you. My wife, by the way, is a head teacher too. Um, and she said, we're never, we never see you. So you're going to have to choose between the school and doing this other stuff, which was speaking and writing and, and sharing experiences and stuff like that. And, I, you know, like a lot of people, I procrastinated. Um, you know, you, you've, you're, in a, you're an amazing job, a job you passionately love. I never at any stage, I never at any stage didn't want to be there. Um, 
you know, I had a great job, a great po- profile, <laughs> crassly a good salary and a great pension plan, right? And the alternative meant going self-employed, giving up all of that. And, and so I was procrastinating. And at the time, and we might come back to this, we might not, but people can look it up. People will know that early on in my career, I was very lucky to find a mentor by accident in, in a man. Some of your listeners may know um, Sir Ken Robinson. And he he and I became very close friends and he became almost my professional dad before he became what I describe as Ted Ken. Um, so before, you know, <laughs> before he, he became Ted Ken. Um, <laughs> and um, he and my wife staged an intervention one night and my wife said something that was so incredibly powerful. She said, you know, you've spent nearly 20 years, Richard, telling kids to take risks and seize opportunity. Are you going to be a hypocrite and stay safe? And when when somebody, particularly the person you love and respect more in the world than anybody else, says that to you, it's kind of a kick up the arse, excuse the language, right? And so I thought, look, you know what? She's right. I need to go and experience what I'm what I'm trying to prepare our kids for because I've never experienced this world that's fast moving, uncertain, entrepreneurial. So I thought, well, I'll go and do it for a couple of years and and then hopefully go back into education. Well. The couple of years now has gone on for 13 because the the journey is just extraordinary. And so over the last 13 years, I've found myself not only continuing to work in education around the world, and I've seen some extraordinary stuff um, in countries all over the place, work with amazingly inspirational people. But I've also worked a lot and increasingly outside of education, which I think has given me a really interesting perspective into the bridge between education and the workplace. Um, and looking at the good and the bad and the things we need to do better. And so that's really been the last 13 years. And and it's a journey I'm now completely hooked on. But if you ask me where I'll be in three, four, five years time, Darren, I have no idea, but I'm sure love will have something to do with it because it was the love of a woman and a love of a building that got me through the career (laughs) I've got so far. (laughs) It's a wonderful, wonderful journey you're you're certainly on. And it's it's great to to reflect on on the past and also look towards the future. But I think some of the things you said there about the for the kids, the love of the journey and the, the hooked into it. You know, I'm, I could I could echo with that. A lot of the th- the work that I do, I I came late into teaching myself, and and I just can't believe I took I took so long to get there because it really is just it's just the job for me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in education, and I just know that that's going to happen. So we're going to spend the rest of the the interview, Richard, talking. A little bit about your book, A Manifesto for Change and for Education. But I'd like to start by something you said in Creating Tomorrow's Schools today. Because in that book, you talk about making school the next must-have. And I personally believe that that is vital in today's society. But how do we do that? How do we make school the next must-have? I think it's a really, I, it's a point, you know, I, I was passionate about when when I was in my teaching career and particularly ahead, and I think it's even more of a, um, a major issue now. Um, I think one of the really important things we have to do is understand that for most of our children, and particularly children in um, socially challenging communities and areas and kids that come from challenging family environments, just telling them that getting their heads down, doing the job, learning the stuff they need to learn, pass the exams, it might get them to university, trust us, that's a really great thing, um, is not necessarily enough. We need to understand, I think, as professionals and people that are passionate about education, that we can see it, we understand that, and we understand the incredible value of it. But for a lot of our kids who are just fighting to survive every day, and also, let's be crass about it, whether we morally like it or not, are obsessed with social media, computer gaming, um, a cyber world that most of us don't understand, it is not enough just to turn around and go, trust us. And if you don't trust us, we'll punish you until you do, because one day you'll thank us for it, right? One of the things that's really interesting for me about children is children love learning. I've never met a child that isn't curious, that isn't resilient in some way or another, that isn't, for, even if it is with a computer game, right, that they become obsessed with. And when they find something of value that important to them, they are extraordinary when it comes to their learning, their resilience, their bounce back ability, all of that stuff. And I think one of the things we have to do, and I think it, when I say we have to do, great teachers have done it since time immemorial, is make learning matter to kids 
beyond you have you know with young kids it'll you'll get a smiley face or a certificate or with older kids you know you'll get a grade that'll help you towards x y and z because the truth is about learning whether it's knowledge or skills or anything unless kids see a context for it it's something that's transitory right they do it for a, for a, as long as they need to and then they move on i'll give you an example i learned um latin at school right i don't know why i was given latin to learn at school but i learned latin at school and i did okay you know i got a b and this this really ages me i got a b in my o level um pre-gcse right and i could do the whole thing i could do a moa massa mat a marmus a martis a mant all that kind of stuff um but as soon as I walked out of school, if you'd asked me to go and speak to an ancient Roman, I would have been stuffed because I didn't have any retention because it didn't have any value to me. And so I think, you know, one of the other things that I've always been fascinated by is the power of early years education. I think we underestimate it massively because I, honestly, when people ask me, where are the best models of learning you've ever seen? And people will, you know, want me to talk about top universities or high performing schools, secondary level or whatever. I think to this day, the most powerful learning I've ever seen occur in the, the best run early years units. Why? Because all of that learning is so skillfully knitted. It's knowledge, it's skills, it's attributes, but it is knitted into contexts. So children are highly experiential in that process and they can see an immediacy in its value, which means learning's accelerated. I couldn't agree with you more, break, making, making learning matter, but obviously bring it into the children's context. I love what you said. And we're going to explore some of that as we, as we carry on. So fast forward a few years from, from creating tomorrow's schools today, you've written Education, a Manifesto for Change. What's moved your thinking forward in that time? Well, I mean, it's interesting because the first um, edition of Creating Tomorrow's Schools was, was actually published in 2010, um, which was uh, two and a half years me, after I left Grange. It was never supposed to be a book, incidentally. It was Ken who turned around to me and said, just journal everything, right? Everything you believe in and you've done down because the further you march away from that experience, the more you'll forget the reality of what it was. So I did that and eventually it got published. Anyway, in, in 2013, 2014, um, the publishers approached me and said, would you do a revised edition? And I said, yes, I will. But I mean, so much of it is static because the second half of the book, for those that know it and have read it, is really just the story of how you transform my philosophy into practice in a school. Um, and as I read through it and I changed bits and added a few reflections here and there, I actually thought, you know, I, I still passionately believe in all this stuff, but it's evolved. And it's evolved because over the, you know, the, the, by then, the, the six or seven years um, of my experience having left Grange there's so much more I've seen that I'd want to write about or adapt and particularly as I said in the introduction having then experienced a huge amount of time outside of education and seeing the synergy and the joined up nature of the challenges and the issues and and what we need to be doing having said that even then I parked it because if I'm honest with you Darren um you know, I, I honestly thought, I'm not sure I have a voice that's valid anymore. You know, education's moved on. The challenges have moved on. Um, the climate around education has moved on. But then I was getting to my 10th anniversary of being out of, of, uh, of Grange in, in 2017. And I couldn't get this idea out of my head that I, I wanted to... I wanted to explain more about this link, the things I'd seen since leaving education that I wish I'd known when I'd been in it. Because I think throughout the 13 year journey since I left, every time I've stepped into a workplace or organization, wherever it's been, whoever it's been with, there's always been a moment where I've thought, God, I wish I'd known that when I was a teacher or a head, right? And so eventually, um, that's how Education and Manifesto came, uh, for Change came about. It was originally supposed to be called I wish I knew then, but the marketing people at Bloomsbury decided that was a rubbish title and they <laughs> gave me the one I got. So I, I never argue. Um, but the basic tenant was to say, look, I know I've been out of the front line for 10 years, but all of this stuff has fascinated me and, and I need to share it back with my profession. Partly cathartic as, an, as a thing of saying, you know, I've been out 10 years, but this stuff really matters to me. <laughs> and, and this is why. Um, and I also felt very strongly that so much of the conversation around education has become so 
focused on making the system more efficient, which I totally understand, right? It's how do we do what we've always done more efficiently? And I think one of the sadnesses around the, the change of government um, a decade or so ago was, and I'm not trying to be political on any major level here, we were beginning to create a mature conversation about visioning forward as well as current practice. And my instinct is that what then happened with a change of government in, in England was actually now it's just about doing what we've always done as efficiently as possible. And so I also felt there was a place for the book to revisit a plea, really, to just when we can think bigger, not just about how we do what we've always done better, but actually how do we finesse and develop what we've always done so it's relevant. No, and that certainly comes across because when you pick up the book, you think, "Oh, what's it going to be about?" But then it isn't. It doesn't talk about what you think it's going to be about when you talk when it's titled "A Manifesto for Change." But what you see in it, it's it's clear that you're learning from all the other businesses and what education can learn. Because I find essentially that educators talk to educators and we're very insular. Whereas we need to actually open up and and find out what's happening in other things. And we're going to going to kind of talk about some of the themes from the book. But you said something that I just that I just loved in it, and it was about Pixar. So, Richard, can you tell me, why do we need a little bit more Pixar in our lives and in our thinking in and about schools? <laughs> do you know, when I first discovered and started researching the whole Pixar thing, I fell in love. And actually, if I'm honest, the first time I came across the Pixar story, I was ahead at Grange. And you'll know this having read Creating Tomorrow's Schools. But one of the things we evolved at Grange very early on was our own university called the Grange University, which was really based on the Pixar University. So when I then had access to find out more about Pixar, you know, you leap at that kind of opportunity. And I think what really fascinates me about the Pixar story it's first of all, as many people will will know, um, Steve Jobs, when he was fired from Apple the first time round, in his spare time, decided to invest in this tiny little computer animation company called Pixar, who were going nowhere, right, and help turn it into what is now Pixar Studios, part of Disney, one of the world's most profitable filmmaking companies on earth. Um, but what fascinated me about Steve's intervention was his philosophy around creativity, development and learning. And one of the things was quite early on when he was involved in Pixar, they were going to move out of these kind of ramshackled offices to shiny new studios uh, because, you know, they, they, they had big ambitions. They started to become profitable and they wanted to build uh, move into purpose buildings. And one of the things that was really interesting when Jobs was first shown the initial plans were that it was set out just like a normal film studio. And what a normal film studio looks like is it's siloed, right? So you have the HR building, you have the marketing building, you have the accounts building, you have the animation building, you have the, all the various different, and they're all separate, right? And that's how the original plan for Pixar's new studios, and Steve ripped them up and said, that's ridiculous. He said, because the only way you progress and develop and innovate is through collaboration. And that's not just collaboration within your own silo, because if all you do as an HR executive is talk to other HR executives, your ideas will be generated about your experience as an HR executive. He said, I want all of those ideas coming from bigger collaboration. I want people having conversations across departments. I want them meeting and sharing their experiences, because that is how you develop practice. And just on one level, if you think about that, there's so many parallels to the education system where we tend to, as you intimated, you know, we tend to, to silo ourselves, whether it's internally as a profession and we think, well, it, education can only be about educators. The experts have to come. With, and I'm not saying that isn't true. But actually, if we're trying to prepare kids for the future, we need to have broader conversations. We need to learn from from other people but also even within schools you know even within a primary school for example reception might never talk to the teachers in year five or six and certainly in a secondary school you might have the PE department never talking to the maths department right and actually one of the, the key messages for me around be more Pixar is we have to be better at collaborating and more open to it um, 
and and one of the things that's fascinating about a profession like ours which is predicated on the power and purpose of learning is just how much sometimes we end up limiting the potential for our own development I'd agree. So, I'd agree, I'm going I'm to jump my questions about if that's okay with you, Richard. Of course, you, you, yeah, yeah. You mentioned collaboration there, and there's a, certainly a theme of collaboration that runs right through the books, and you alluded to it a little bit there in your, in, in your response to the previous question. But can you go a little bit further? Why should educators have more conversations with each other? So you mentioned the different departments in the school, but also why should we have more conversations with, with people outside of our field, like scientists, artists, business people? Well, I, I think, again, it, first of all, within the profession, I think one of the things that certainly has developed and is incredibly exciting, looking almost now as a kind of second level outside frontline of education as I am, is to see some of the conversations and sharing and collaboration that goes on through social media. Some of it is extraordinary. You know, if you strip back some of the clickbait sensationalists who are just there to try and create discord and anger and headlines and get as many followers as they possibly can the real educators on twitter are doing some amazing collaborative stuff right at large level small level and and so i'm really heartened by that i think we have to remember that it's a very tiny percentage of the education profession that's actually using social media still um and and one of the things i think we still find is it's not that teachers don't want to collaborate particularly and take a secondary setting for example but most teachers are so snowed under just trying to deliver their syllabus right i mean the number of times i've heard conversations around how do we develop things like teamwork and and uh, creativity and innovation and somebody some you know, poor downtrodden member of staff in the maths department go, no, I get it. I think that's absolutely brilliant, but there's nowhere in my syllabus that I can possibly fit that stuff in. So maybe humanities can do it, right? And the conversation goes round. And I think we have to realize the power of that cross-fertilization. You know, one of the things that's really important to remember about creativity is you have to have new experiences and challenge yourself and be challenged to be creative. Otherwise, you just recycle the experiences you've, you've always had. Um, and I think in terms of the broader collaboration, you know, I didn't realize this so much when I was at Grange, but in the 13 years since, you know, as, as I've said, it kind of strides everything I've done. The number of times I've met people, and I'll give you a couple of examples from outside of education, um, scientists, for example, who have said things that have absolutely blown my mind. I'll give you three examples, okay? The first is Manoush Shafiq, who is currently the director of the London School of Economics. She was, until very recently, considered to be um, potentially the woman who could become the first female governor of the Bank of England, which you can imagine would have been seismic in terms of shattering glass ceilings. She's an economist, right? And she, she works at the London School of Economics. She's a genius. Um, and I hope one day she still gets that role, by the way. But, um, you know, something she said, for example, at the World Economic Forum in Davos a couple of years ago is this. Um, Anything that's routine or repetitive will be automated. The soft skills, creative skills, research skills, the ability to find information, synthesize it and make something of it is the future. Now, you know, that's that's the kind of challenge that we should be setting as educators, right? And and in a way, it's how a lot of us feel. But if for no other reason, listening to somebody like Minouche validates what that challenge is and it's that kind of voice I think that can be a catalyst for change um, you know an, another example was Barry Barish who's the 2017 Nobel Prize winner for physics who we spent hours talking about his recruitment strategy right two things he said to me that were fascinating he said nobody got onto my team my Nobel Prize winning science team nobody got onto that team if they didn't have arts in their background as well as sciences because single discipline people are useless when you're thinking about innovation now if that isn't a major underlining of what innovation is is all about there it is and the importance of collaboration and the second thing he said which i'd love to drop now and leave people to think about because i think it's glorious in its simplicity and complexity all at the same time was he said nobody made it onto my team if they didn't have the ability to ask stupid questions 
right? So the power of things you learn. I mean, as an educator, wouldn't that be a brilliant question to start a CPD session with colleagues on? How do we ensure our kids have the confidence to ask a stupid question? Wouldn't that be brilliant, right? And then the final example was um, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple who, again, in very elongated conversations, the thing that he always said to me that resonated was, and also around recruitment, he said, um, we would never employ anyone if they weren't capable of managing themselves. And again, wouldn't that be a great CPD starter? So my point is, we've got to stop believing that the opinions and experiences of people outside of education can't have huge relevance to us. And the more we embrace that and those conversations and their expertise, it's not a threat to our professionalism. To me, it's absolutely, um, it, it's, it's, it's an inclusion in our professionalism. Certainly, and Certainly, I think, I think asking, asking some of those questions at CPD in terms of teaching moving forward into the, the 22nd century, century, we've got a duty to be asking those questions and to build that into our curriculum. And that's just to just to interject there, you're right. I mean, people need to remember kids who are going to be starting school in the next couple of years will be living in the 22nd century. The 21st century, the planning for that's done right mm -hmm. so actually we got to remember that kids who are being born at the moment will be living in the 22nd century absolutely and um, kind of brings us on to teachers now and you're right that teachers are experts in our field and it's something that i, that I spoke to you about prior to to come to starting the, the interview why do teachers need to be more secure and self-confident about this and not only confident in that we're experts in our own field but we're also becoming experts in that in the area of human development I, I think this comes from, you know, it goes in waves, the way teachers are made to feel about themselves externally. Um, and I, as, as people might know, we're recording this right in the heart of the, um, pardon me, the COVID crisis. And actually, right at a time where debate across the UK, but particularly in England right now, about when we should be reopening schools and how we should be reopening schools is huge. Now, one of the issues around that, I'm not going to get into the rights, wrongs or how we do it or all the rest of it, but what we're seeing yet again from the same corners of, of the people you'd expect it is a huge um, uh, effort to try and undermine the profession, to batter teachers, to make us look like we're focusing on the wrong things, we don't care, etc, etc, etc. And sadly, this is a trope that is so often trotted out by people who are trying to oppose educators' viewpoints, right? And it, and it becomes deeply political and deeply personal. And I think this isn't new. It's happened for generations. And, and by the way, it's a lot worse in some countries other than ours. For example, in Spain, the way teachers are made to feel about themselves is appalling and their pay levels are so low, um, you know, that they really are considered second class citizens. But again, one of the things I think I've seen more and more and more over the last decade or so, you know, when I stand in a boardroom talking to the senior leadership team of a major corporation, I'm a primary school teacher and I'm not a special one. I'm a lucky one, Darren, as I explained in the introduction. Right. And what I do basically is when they're asking me for my wisdom and advice on how you lead and manage uh, a team of people through a crisis or change or whatever else it is. Basically, what I do is give them the same advice I used to use myself when I was teaching an arsy group of year fives on a wet Thursday afternoon. I just don't tell them that. But what you realize more and more and more is that teachers are extraordinary. We are extraordinarily skilled professionals. Our ability to understand human leadership is second to no other field in the world. Um, our knowledge and ability to translate con uh, complex uh, ideas and themes and knowledge into stuff that's tangible for kids is second to nobody else on earth. And sometimes I fear that as a profession, we allow our feeling of inadequacy to prevent us from taking the lead in our development as a profession, as education, as a field that we could take. You know, you look at doctors, for example, you look at the medical profession, they are incredibly good at seizing political agendas back from politicians, right? They are brilliant at it. They advocate why, they advocate what the vision should be, and they have the trust of the public, therefore, to action it. And they force politicians 
into shifts in policy and mindset. I'm not sure we're as good at it. Um, our unions try, but for all kinds of obvious reasons, you know, their job is to represent their members. And therefore, sometimes they get, a, they get diverted away from the vision and values for for learners and, and how it could be. Yet when you look at the international um, polling data into the most trusted professions, right? Ipsos Mori every year produce a veracity index, um, which is their trust survey into I think 35, 34, 35 professions. You can find it online. The last one was published for 2019. So just pre-COVID. Um, but the results have been the same for the last decade. The top pr most trusted profession for over the decade that this has been running has always been the medical profession, doctors, nurses, right? But always just behind, do and doctors and nurses have a rough, uh, a, a veracity index around 92%. Teachers have always come straight after that profession in that veracity index, so always hovering around second, third, right? And our veracity index is always around 90%. Now, to put that into context, journalists have a veracity index in 2019 of 26%. And poli general politicians have a veracity index, trust index amongst the public of 14%. And sometimes we need to remember that. We are more trusted and more skilled than we believe. And I think if we exploit that trust, and more importantly, our skill and knowledge, we will find the ability to seize the agenda much easier. Because parents who are voters are much more inclined to trust us as long as we build a positive, constructive vision than they are those people that currently dominate the agenda. 100 percent. And I agree with that. And, and something that Ross Morrison McGill, who wrote the forward to your book, says a lot, that if teachers can actually get together, we have the power to move policy. And I think that's something that kind of follows on what you said there wonderfully. So in, in so chapter five of A Manifesto for Change, you discuss the skills that help us define great teachers and define great teachers. Could you share a little share bit a little more on this, more on this and, and what the chapter, what the chapter speaks, speaks about? Yeah, I mean, it really, chapter five really starts from this point of view of, of comparison. So one of the things I've been very privileged in the last 13 years to do, and, and if anyone actually sees me physically, they'd be surprised by, um, is I've been involved more and more in elite sports. So I've been been involved in, in elite football, um, the, uh, the British Olympic team, golf, cricket. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me um, is the link that you see between what conversations and actions take place in coaching at elite sport level and the same conversations happening in education. So it's a great parallel. So when I wrote chapter five, I wanted to explore what great coaching looked like and what great coaches were talking about. So whether that was Clive Woodward, Alex Ferguson, um, you know, the coaches at the front line of their organizations and sports, or whether it was, you know, whether it was great teaching. And I think there are so many parallels which are worth talking about because I don't think they're complex. I think for most great teachers, it would be stuff you're doing already, which is important because sometimes it's not as a profession about learning new stuff. It's about underlining the fact you are doing stuff brilliantly anyway, right? And so what I wanted to do was explore those parallels. So you know, just going through some of the key themes. If I say, for example, in sports coaching, the, the holy grail right now is around empowerment, which is interesting because often when in education we talk about empowerment, we're accused of being soft and woolly. Well, let me tell you, world-class sport, uh, sports coaches who are trying to help their athletes win gold medals at Olympic Games are far from soft and woolly, right? But they're talking about having, they, they need to move away from the dependency culture that micromanagement creates. And the problem traditionally in coaching is coaches do all of it and athletes become wholly dependent on their coaches which means that often in the heat of competition the athlete doesn't have the confidence or the developed skill to be able to self-lead by increments their own performance and their own changes and tweaks in the way they're working and i think that's true in education you know great teachers empower they don't control because if you create a dependency culture there's going to come a point where you are no longer that child's wing man or wing woman right you are that child is alone and you see it a lot for example in the world after education where young people struggle to self-lead and self-manage because they've never been required to do it so the something definitely powerful uh, about that 
also again this isn't you know this isn't new stuff but it's worth reinforcing that this is common across a number of sectors the ability of great teachers to express real interest in the individual so that every single child in every class you teach knows you know them knows you know their particular quirks their context their background and as an educator of course great skilled educators don't corral kids into groups of 30 and treat every kid the same they skillfully manage on a human level to make sure each child feels that they're allowed that the you know that they're being talked to and trusted as an individual and that, that the, you know, kids, athletes respond brilliantly that way. The next one is great communication. You know, and by communication, yes, we're talking about the outward stuff. But one of the things that fascinated me when I was listening to great coaches talk was that their most important communication tool is the ability to listen. And again, if you think about it, that's what great teachers do. We listen. We're constantly listening. We're listening for nuance. We're listening through body language, not just through what kids say. And that helps us inform our strategy for how to manage and lead that child successfully. Um, and I think when you start to think about those things, you start to realize that actually, A, what great teachers do isn't unique. It's across a number of fields. And actually, it's not complicated for other teachers to pick up on and learn. I do fear that there has been an entire industry built up over the last 30 or 40 years in education, which has almost created a myth of complexity. And I think one of the things I've fought for all of my career is to say to most teachers, listen, research is brilliant. But don't believe that things have to be complex to be powerful and successful. And, and again, you know, one of the things that, that I interviewed a number of years ago, um, Eric Schmidt, who's the former executive chairman of Google, and we were talking about education. And I asked him a question, which I thought would spark an interesting debate. And the question was, do you ever see a time where technology will replace the teacher? And you'll see where this is going in my answer, because his answer was immediate and unequivocal, unequivocal. He said, no, never. He said, you have to understand, Richard, technology is an incredible catalyst and tool for education. But education is first and foremost about the development of human beings. And in order to develop human beings, you have to have high levels of human interaction. And I think as a profession, sometimes we need to realize that complex isn't the answer sometimes it's about the simplicity of human relationships doesn't mean it's easy but it's a lot simpler than some of our profession believe it has to be i would certainly agree with that and i've, and I've released a previous podcast earlier on about making teaching simple because i totally believe there is such a simple act and if we strip it back to the, to the bare necessities of without all the technology and just human to human it can be extremely powerful like you said and um, you spoke a lot in the book about the power of communities and you recognize that they're already authentic outstanding settings that utilize their community could you speak to the idea of involving our communities more in schooling yeah i think i think this is crucial and again both as a as a young leader and and through the experience of grange this was really crystallized for me you know it goes back to that old african proverb it takes a village to raise a child um, and i absolutely believe it is when i look back on why grange was so successful it was successful not because everything was driven by teachers or me as a head teacher um, it was genuinely involving the entire community and you know since the grange story which people we haven't got time to talk about today but people can read up on um but what i've learned since and seeing and, and i actually i talked about it in the second edition of creating schools and then more in, in educating uh, education a manifesto for change was the the greatest example of community collaboration and the impact on education i've ever seen which was in colombia in colombia's second city medellin um which some people will recognize um from narcos which was the city that um was dominated by drug barons and drug lords and was for many, many years the most dangerous city in the world. You know, pa uh, Pablo Escobar um, created it deliberately to be that way. And so it was a horrendously uh, fractured, dangerous city, particularly for young people. Um, and as they came out of the Escobar era, uh, era, um, era and, and ever since, they've realized the future lies in 
education and raising the skills and knowledge of their young people in order to bring inward investment to the city to create a more affluent society which allows you to invest in the poorest communities, raise everybody, right? Um, and, and what they did, which was sensational, was realize that we have to start with the poorest kids in the poorest communities. But we can't just go and build a school and fill it with teachers and expect kids to come and learn and see the value of it. So they did a number of things. The first was, um, and the poorest people in the Medellin community live in the, the hillsides. And uh, until about 20 years ago, it would take maybe eight hours to get from those hillside slums down into the middle of the city. So most of the people in the poorest slums didn't see the city as theirs. It, it was for the rich people. It was for the privileged, right? So the first thing they did was build a communicate. Uh, a sorry, transport system, they built um, a cable car network, which gets people for free from the toughest to reach mountain hillside slums down into the city centre in less than eight minutes, right? So eight hours to eight minutes. Then what they did was they realised they had to create education that mattered up in those hillside communities. So they did two really powerful things and they were connected. They invested in schools and they got major tech companies um, to invest and put tech infrastructure into those schools too. So they were really state of the art. Um, and then what was really interesting was they got money from uh, UNESCO to build a an art center, a state-of-the-art, incredible, iconic art center. But rather than build it in the posh part of the city, they built it in the toughest slum community on the hillsides around Medellin. And when they built it, what they did was they went out to the community. And this is the vital connector. They didn't go to the children where the schools were being built or go to school. They didn't even say to the parents, right, you need to send your children to school because these kids and these parents had never experienced formal education and frankly had just been surviving. They went to the grandparents and they used the art center as the catalyst. And they said to the grandparents generation, this art center is for you. This state of the art, iconic, globally iconic piece of architecture is yours. And we want you to fill it with your culture, your art, your music, your history, your stories. And what we're going to do, grandparents, is we're going to teach you how to do that. So we're going to teach you to become literate and numerate and skilled so that you can fill this art center with your tradition and your history. Right. And then what they said was because the grandparents started to see the value and context for learning the grandparents went home and kicked the asses of the parents and children and said you need to go to school because this stuff's great right that power of the collaborative of a whole community working together has transformed the city medellin today is the fastest growing city in latin america with some of the most extraordinary inward investment and also has per capita the highest number of new applicants going into higher education for the first time in a family's history um, and i think there's a huge amount of lessons we can learn from that because particularly in our schools in our tough communities if all we do is focus on telling kids to learn and learn hard that there isn't the infrastructure around them we have to start with creating a context and value for the wider community and use the community as a momentum and catalyst to create meaningful transformation in our schools i would i, mean, I would certainly I would agree say, and in my experience, my experience i work in, in schools and local authorities and some parents and grandparents just don't want to come to the building because of because their of horrible experiences, negative experiences, and we need to be better at that. We need to be better at involving the whole family, because as you say, it takes a village to raise a child. And it brings me on to my next point. Uh, you believe that the curriculum and the way that we teach it needs to evolve, and that we spend too much time trying to make the existing system more efficient, rather than looking for new ways to improve it. So Richard, how do we improve that system? Well, I, I think it touches what the point you've just made is one that touches back on on something we talked about before, which is this idea that so much of policy focus, particularly in the last decade, has focused on trying to make the system more efficient. Um, and, and that, you know, I don't want to get into some prog versus trad debate, which frankly bores the life out of me. Um, and, and frankly, I think is a very feeble construct around how we divide a profession. I don't think there's any good teacher out there that doesn't believe that the synergy of knowledge and skills is vital. Whichever one comes first, chicken and egg, it really is irrelevant, right? Good teachers know you have to have both. One without the other 
is is less than half a job done but one thing we have to understand i think is too much of our curriculum based on that efficiency model is designed and predicated around how do we drive kids through qualifications how do we get them to get qualified how do we get them to pass exams how do we get them into universities right which is interesting in itself because a lot of universities will say they're as worried about um, young people's soft skills when they come into higher education as they are the hard stuff right and what's also really interesting is major employers around the world now including people like kpmg ernst and young microsoft are turning around and saying we're not even sure we need graduate programs anymore because we reckon we can teach the technical stuff they learn on a degree in about six weeks what we need are people with uh, a much kind of with all the soft skills attributes the human skills the interpersonal skills the collaborative skills the team working stuff that's what we're looking for which is interesting in itself right because that calls into question for me so are we giving enough time and focus to a broader sense of what we mean by curriculum so that it isn't just subject delivery and preparation for exams. You know, the OECD in 2013 produced a report, which again, listeners can find for free on the internet, um, which was called the Skills Outlook. And, and it was the first global report, uh, research report of its kind, which looked at the link between education, employment and skills. And the first key executive headline from that report said the countries which are focused on the acquisition of qualifications above all things in education are the countries where increasingly young people are going to find it increasingly difficult to get jobs because what's happening in those systems are education um, is being designed to make sure the kids acquire qualifications at the expense of the wider skills and knowledge they'll need in order to become employable. Now, I know there are some out there that will argue education should just be education for education's sake, should just be about the beauty and discovery of literature and different physics laws, which is fine, except for the fact that our young people need to find a way to be employed when they leave education. So we don't live in a utopian world where we can just study education in a classicist sense, right? We have to be more pragmatic than that. Um, so one of the things for me is about saying, well, we need to look at how we connect the curriculum more, how we look at we need to unpick the interconnected skills and knowledge. So, for example, physical education, which a lot of people still see as a kind of outlier, like they do drama or music. So much of the knowledge and skills you develop, for example, in physical education is the same knowledge and skill you need in maths or physics or chemistry or biology or literacy. Um, and and we, need to, we need to become more connected in those areas because actually if we start to teach in a more connected way, if we make the curriculum more connected for young people, they've got a far greater chance, A, of remembering that stuff and be understanding its usable value when they come out of the education system. I couldn't agree more. And it brings us on to the last question I've got for you in the interview section before we move on to the, the final three. And you're right that if we as educators want to have an impact in the future, then we need to have an idea of what we want that future to be. And you've given a couple of examples from around the world on some of the themes that we've discussed. But how do you see this future and what should our legacy be? I think the really important thing, you know, if we're going to get heavy about this, and and now if now isn't a good time to do it, I don't know where it would be. Um, you know, our children are the generation. Our children are going to face challenges almost like no other generation have. Maybe arguably the post-war generation of young people did. Um, you know, in the fifties, coming out of the Second World War uh, and the fragmentation. Um, you know, our, our children are going to face, before COVID, they were going to face three global crises, which have all been amplified by that crisis. They're going to face a global challenge around the environment, a global challenge around the economy, and a global challenge around um, socio-cohesion. And we need to make sure that our children are prepared to take on that challenge. Add in 
the challenge of the lived experience that we are being, we're going through with the um, COVID-19 crisis and the legacy that that alone will leave, not for months or years, but decades, right? We have to ensure that our children are capable and equipped of leading the world, not just through those issues, but reinventing the world to make sure that the planet itself is more secure and safe and connected. And in order to do that, we can't just deliver what we've always done more efficiently. So there's a question that I would leave with people, which is this, which was a catalyst question at Grange, which has been touched upon pretty much in all of my writing and work ever since. And I guess it's a simple question, but it's this. What do we want our children to look like as human beings when they leave us, whether we're a, um, a nursery, whether we're an infant school, a primary school, a secondary school, a special school, a university? What do we want our students to look like as human beings when they leave us? Now, I can't give you the conclusive list to that question because every context, every setting is different. And children in Iran will have different needs to children in the US will have different needs to children in Scotland, to England, to wherever it is in the world. But I think if we can start to flesh out that question, we can build a curriculum that isn't just worthy of making sure our kids survive in the 21st and 22nd century, but thrive in it. I think that's a beautiful way to, to finish that interview section and, and you've posed some really great questions there for us to, to really think about. And I think it's definitely relevant for the here and now. What do we want our young people to look like? I mean, I don't have children yet. I've got friends that do. What does the world, what do we want the world to look like for them? And we have the power to shape that. And I'm going to finish the, the podcast at the end with a, with, a quote, with a quote direct from your book that kind of encapsulates that. Which brings me on to the, the final three, Richard. And before we do that, however, could you share with, with the listeners a little bit about where they can find your work, where they can find your books and where they can engage with you, please? Sure, absolutely. And by the way, I love engaging with people because for years I've felt, um, and, and it's my own personal anxieties, but I'm happy to share this. For years, I've felt increasingly irrelevant to the education system. And I think what I've learned since I wrote Education and Manifesto for Change is maybe I'm more relevant than this old man thought he was. So please, please, please connect. People can find out more about me by visiting my website, which is simply richardgerver.com, from connecting with me on Twitter, where I'm at Richard Gerver. And my books are pretty much universally available from Amazon and, and all the all the usual bookshops. Um, but most importantly of all, I'd love people to reach out if anything I've said today is interesting and I promise I'll connect with them. What a, what a wonderful offer. Thank you so much. Um, so it brings me on to my final three. These are the questions that I ask all my guests and some of the answers I get are, are extremely fascinating. And it's a lot of questions that that fascinate me as well. So the first one, Richard, is, is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career? Well, this goes back to the person I told you was my mentor, Sir Ken Robinson. Um, as I say, I was very fortunate to build my friendship with Ken before he became the globe-tropping megastar TED star person that he is. Um, and I first came across Ken when he wrote, uh, authored, a, he was chair of a government research uh, in the early 90s called All Our Futures, which was really exploring then what the future looked like and what that would mean for education and how we might need to to evolve it. He turned that uh, that research project into a book called Out of Our Minds, Learning to Be Creative. It's a substantive tome. Um, it's brilliantly put together, very um, detailed in its research and very um, constructive and, and optimistic. And, and the reason I share that, and, and I hope people won't mind me saying this, is there are some out there that have criticized Sir Ken um, based on his uh, 16, 18 minute TED speech for being somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about, a great comedian, blah, blah, blah. All I would say is that please hold your judgment and read out of our minds learning to be creative before you accuse him of not knowing what he's talking about. I, would, I think it's certainly something to do that because he is world renowned for his for his talks on TED. So thank you for that. Um, so my second question to you, Richard, is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? It's okay not to be perfect. It's really okay not to be. 
able to show mistake making in front of your students as long as you then show them that you're thinking about it, analyzing and learning from it. I don't think there's a more powerful gift you can give your kids. So I suppose really wrap that all together with everything else I would say is be authentic. Trust you. Wonderful, wonderful words of advice. Thank you. And my final question to you today, Richard, is what do you think gets in the way most of great teaching in our classrooms? I think the perception that we are um, heavily pressured into focusing on outcomes in terms of testing that leads to massive levels of accountability. I have never met a teacher that doesn't want to teach differently or more dynamically, but the problem is the perceived pressure on them holds them back. And I would actually say that through my experience, and I can only say this through the experience I've had, there is no either or. If you create powerful dynamic learning environments, kid, kids will jump over any hurdle you put before them. I, can, I wholeheartedly agree with, with what you just said there. And I would just like to finish today's podcast with you, Richard, by thanking you so, so much for giving me your time. It's a, it's a, Honestly, it's a privilege for me to, to chat through some of the, the themes that you, you talk about. And I'd like to finish with, with a quote that I've just taken directly from your book that I think is, is extremely powerful and it's something that I've, that I've taken from it. And you've, you, you wrote there that educators are like it or not, some of the most important people in changing our future. And I certainly believe that. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for having me on, Darren. It's uh, made an old man very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I, was glad I could help. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy. <laughs>